Welcome to the CTO Function Podcast. I'm PJ Kerner, and my goal here is to help people understand and improve at this multifaceted technologist role. I interview CTOs who are doing the job, and we try and learn from their experiences of building and scaling companies from the technology point of view. And while I've personally done variations of the CTO job for 15 plus years, when I get together with my fellow CTOs, often the conversation goes directly into the tech. But here we're going to start by talking about the job itself and what skills it takes to do it well. But near the end, we'll dive a little bit into some technology changes and insights for our, from our guests. So I'd like to welcome Jeff Francis, who is the CTO of Parker Radio Association. And what's interesting about this show is we get to hear a little bit about what it's like for a CTO to have to deal with hardware in extreme conditions, as well as what it's like leading an all-volunteer organization. Let's get into the show. So I'd like to welcome Jeff Francis, who's the CTO of the Parker Radio Association. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Good to be here. So I have a few questions I'd you know ask different CTOs, and I'd like to ask you. Um, but the first one is, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and the organization that you that you work for. Sure. So the Parker Radio Association, we're a we're an amateur radio club. We're a service organization. Um, in a few respects, we're a little bit like a Lions Club or a Rotary Club. We provide things like emergency communications for natural disasters, for power outages. We support community events that need communication. Um, for example, we support a 100-mile bike ride every year and provide for the safety and well-being of all the riders, covering all the areas where cell phones don't work. So uh, we're, we're also, of course, a, a hobbyist club. Amateur radio is a huge hobby. There's 700,000, a million hams in the country. Um, and we provide a training. We provide education. We provide just a fun place to be part of your hobby. Oh, that's great. It's kind of, the, yeah, there's a hobby part and there's actually a, you know, a service part to that. That's, there that's is. really interesting. So, so uh, you know, I have a friend who you know says there's a thousand ways to do the CTO job, and that's part of what this podcast is to explore some of those. But what are your thoughts on exactly what um, you know a CTO does? Like, what 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 do you do as you know CTO in that in the job itself? So we have about you know ju just to put a perspective on it, a, a size perspective. We have about a little under 300 members in the club, about 270 members, and I do some traditional CTO things, right? The forward-looking visionary, trying to figure out where we need to be in five years, looking at new technology, that kind of thing. But the reality is in an organization with only about 300 people, I also do the job of CISO, of CIO, uh, as well as even some, you know, good old technician jobs, all SSH into machines and set up VPNs and, you know, solder new new cables for antennas, you know, the, the job is kind of, it's, it's very hands-on CTO job, as well as the traditional aspects of a CTO job on top of that. Yeah, I, I do think every CTO should know how to solder. I think that's a, uh, a, a required skill. Um, so actually, that's my, my next question is, like, what kind of, what kind of skills do you think CTOs need to be good at the job? And, 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 Think about this. There'll be people watching this who are not yet CTOs, right? Who want to sort of become CTOs. Like, what, what do you, what, what skills do you have to have? And, and you could also think about your, your time up to this. Like, you know, what did you have to learn to like be good at this job? 
Well, so I've worked for really large organizations. I worked for Intel at one point, you know, a big blue chip company. And I think the CTO of a company like Intel is very different than the CTO of a nonprofit, as I am right now, or as a, of a startup company. You know, all of them have a little bit different aspects. The The larger the corporation you work for, the, the more their bottom line is measured in billions of dollars. I think there's much more of a managerial aspect to the job. Um, as you move down the scale to startups and, and nonprofits, uh, I, I think there's a whole lot more technology involved in the job. Um, no matter where you come from, the best CTOs I've ever known and worked with all started as engineers. They're all able to get down in the weeds, maybe not actually sit down and write code or build circuits, but they can at least have architectural discussions with people. At least talk about high-level architectures, about how things fit together. They need at least that understanding of the technology because otherwise it, it, it's hard to look into the future and know where we're going to go if you don't even understand what state of the art is right now. So maybe you don't need to be a, a current programmer. Maybe you don't need to sit down and write code every day or every week, but you need to have written code at some point, I think, if you're the CTO of an organization that writes code. Likewise, if you build electronics, you probably should have been an electrical engineer at some point. So you can at least have discussions about what it is that you're building and where it is you want to go, what's possible versus not possible. That's my opinion. So so what what is it that, I mean, because so if you've done that in the past, how do you sort of stay grounded in like with that? Because as you, you know, like if you were to get the, so if you were an engineer and then right. you become a CTO, then over time, your engineering skills kind of deteriorate, get a little old, which is kind of why I'm talking about, you know, you need to be able to have the architectural discussions, maybe not the implementation discussions. For the most part, technology kind of grinds forward, getting more and more advanced, getting better and better. And then occasionally you have a step function, right? And that step function is a whole new thing that perhaps you'll have to sit down and learn something new in order to have the right kind of conversation with people. But until you hit one of those step functions, if I learned programming 20 years ago, I can still have a, a very reasonable architectural level programming discussion with programmers. Now that AI and machine learning has come along, you know that that's a step function. It's completely changed the way we look at the world. I, I if I didn't sit down and learn some of the technology for myself and make the time to, to learn that, I'm not sure I could have a productive conversation with somebody about that. So there, there are places where you need to stop and sit down and learn, but I'm not sure you need to learn, you know, the new version of React just because, you know, 5.0 came out last week. I can still talk about React 1.0 and have a useful conversation. So uh, how do you make time for that, right? How do you make like how do you make time to or, or do you do you weave it into the day to day or is that a uh, you know uh, you know uh, you know I, I I still have a family I still have uh, one kid at home we have pets we have uh, livestock it's it I have hobbies right it, it's hard to work all this stuff in and sometimes the answer is. I'm sitting in my uh, my Archie Bunker lazy boy chair upstairs reading a book until one o'clock in the morning. Sometimes that's just how it works. I would love to say I'm able to work it into the day to day and do a little here and a little there, but uh, you know sometimes your hair's on fire and that's just not an option. So 
there, there's there's a lot of late nights. Uh, fortunately, my wife is in somewhat the same position, so she's not offended when I do that because she's kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, I do notice you have a few books there on the shelf. So I like books, as you might notice. Yes, I was I was uh, I was before I was I was going to try and pull out. I, I have a programming serial communications book, and the the best thing about the book I got I don't know what what year it was it was you know in the 80s or something, they, it had a pull-out uh, um, pull poster with the yep. entire ASCII code on it uh, and all the code. That was like, yep. it came inside the book. You, you know, you yep. ripped it out. It was like uh, amazing. You know, people forget back in the 80s, we couldn't just look on Wikipedia to look up an ASCII table at the spur of the moment. You know, off I know. The right now, if I can't remember the ASCII code for a pound sign, in literally three seconds, I can look it up. And, and in the 80s, you, you either knew it or you had, you know, one of a very few rare books that might have that in it, or it was a trip to the library. Yeah, that's why I had my poster. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so another question. Is there some kind of philosophy or framework where you use as CTO to do your, to do your job? Um, yes, but... You know, I'm relatively new to the CTO role. I've been doing this about six months now, and I'm not quite at the point where I can fully articulate um, all the things I'm learning and have learned about it. One, one thing I can talk about, we are an entirely volunteer organization. Um, when I, if, I, I don't even like to use the, the phrase, the people that work for me, because they don't work for me. We all work for the club, right? We all work for our fellow members. I have responsibility for, you know, an overarching piece of things they're responsible for, but they don't really work for me. So that's one of the things I've had to get used to. It's a little bit different than when people truly work for you, right? And you, you, you do their raises, you do their reviews, you do their bonuses, you do these things. No, we're, we're all volunteers, right? We're, we're all doing this for the love of the hobby, for the love of public service, for the love of our fellow club members. So one of my philosophies is sometimes we got to say no. Uh, in a volunteer organization, um, I don't know how many you've been a part of, you get about 5% of the people carry the bulk of the load. 5% of the people do 99% of the work. That for us with 270 members, that's 13 people. There's about another 5% you can call upon to do things. They're not gonna just volunteer to do them, but they're willing to do them. So we've got a total of about 26 people who can do things or, or who are willing to do things as opposed to the rest who come to the club meeting. And there's nothing wrong with coming to the club meeting and turning out for events and participating. But there's about 25 people or so who actually do things. So one of the things we recently had to do is um, I'm also on the board. As CTO, I'm also on the board of the club. We were working towards a grant. It was a $100,000 grant. We were fairly far along through the grant process uh, of building a communications trailer where it's useful for public events and natural disasters. It's completely self-contained. It's got power, generator, air conditioning, everything to be able to do full communications, both voice and data communications during an emergency with no cellular resources, no internet resources. It was really cool. And we were actually fairly far along through the process. And we actually all sat down and talked and decided to withdraw our application for that $100,000 grant because with only about 20, 25 people to do all the work of the club, we were in a very serious danger of, of burning people out. 
had we accepted this money, we now have the responsibility to put it to use. And that was going to take all of those 20 or 25 people a year's worth of work. And again, this is all stuff people do in the evening and on the weekends when they're not at their normal job. So part of my philosophy is we just sometimes have to say no. Um, I recently brought in someone to run one of the, the groups for me, our, our repeater committee. And he's exceptionally talented. And when I asked him to, to step up and take the role, he accepted. And about a week later, he, he emailed me back and he declined because he said, I don't, I, there, you know, there's certain aspects of the job, the people side of it, I just don't want to deal with. So in our case, you know, it, it's, it's not like we could go to the next guy. Um, so we actually ended up modifying the quote unquote job description. And, and therefore, I've taken on the people aspect and he's taken on the technology aspect because it, it, at least it takes the technology burden off my shoulders and lets me focus on some of the higher level things. I still have to deal with the people side. I may find someone else to do that at some point. I may not. But these are all kind of the, the fun juggling acts we do when, you know, I, I don't have money to throw at people and pay them a little more to do to do the job or pay someone else to do it. This is all volunteer. So it's an interesting philosophy. I'm not quite at the point where I can write it down yet, but I'm learning a lot. Well, I think I'll, I will, I'll tell you those two things. I mean, both, um, I mean, I think the CTO, what I've learned in, in my career is the CTO job, even in an organization that's not volunteer is one of influence, right? You often don't have direct control, even though you might have, you know, might have a CTO office and a small set of people you do have direct control over, but uh, most of the organization you don't have a direct control over. And that kind of, how do you play the influence? How do you be successful at influencing in a technology vision is a shared kind of thing. So it seems like it, it, you need it in that organization and maybe you need it more, um, but it's a it's a common thing. And, and I do appreciate the saying no part of it, right? Because, um, you know, I also believe in, one has to do, sometimes one has to do less, right? You... You know, you have to sort of, um, you know, I read some advice the other day about you should make a to-do list and a not to do, so a not to do list. And every time you put something on the to-do list, you should put something on the on the on the not to do list as a way to balance things out. I'm going to try uh, that. I haven't done that. Yes, um, but it it does uh, it does seem like a great idea. Um, Indeed. So so um, here's another interesting question. And, and again, in the volunteer organization, maybe it's a little bit harder is like, how does your organization measure your success? Right? Like what, what does, what does, what does, what does they, what do they need from you? Maybe the board, maybe your members, uh, that if you continue to do that, they call that, you know, Jeff is a success at the CTO role. Fair enough. So as part of my responsibility, I have, uh, all of our IT systems, right? We have, we have a small, very small data center. We have a fair number of servers. We have some infrastructure in, in Amazon AWS that does is primarily centered around communications. We have web servers. We have, uh, you know, a, a group chat server. We have um, a for sale system where, where members can buy and sell equipment. Um, what's interesting is we also have, as part of our repeater infrastructure, we put radios up on top of the mountains here in Colorado. So I have what amounts to small data centers on top of 10, 12, 14,000 foot mountains. 
um, in shacks sitting, you know, up in the snow at 12, 13, 14,000 feet. Those systems have to work. Uh, in, in some cases, in rare cases, it's literally even life or death, whether people can communicate via, via that infrastructure. So we have to build infrastructure that's very resilient. It's got to survive negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. It's got to survive plus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We have to survive internet outages. We have to survive power outages. We have to have redundant power systems. And all of these systems need to be resilient enough where if the power does go out longer than our backup systems work, they'll all come back up again. Because otherwise, there's a couple of us piling into a Jeep, you know, driving up a four-wheel drive road, perhaps in 18 inches of snow, up to try to get this infrastructure up and running again. So success to me is providing the resources to the groups that own that that physically manage that infrastructure, making the right choices as far as computer equipment, power systems, all those things, software choices to build redundant, resilient systems that can survive lightning strikes, power outages, internet problems, weather extremes, wind, rain, snow. So success is keeping the infrastructure up and running, you know, keeping the membership uh, able to communicate, keeping up with new technologies as, as, you know, ham radio is one of the oldest technologies around. Morse code has been around for 178 years now, and we still use Morse code. At the same time, we're also at the bleeding edge of technology. We've got some of the latest and greatest, you know, digital communications technologies come out of the amateur radio world. And we have to keep that in front of the membership. We have to build systems that utilize that new technologies because, you know, we're all technologists. We like to play with the newest toys and goodies. So success is all of those things, resilient working infrastructure, as well as the latest and greatest goodies for, for our membership to use and play with. I think visually, um, like, uh, so I'm more of a software guy and I like, right. and um, thinking of lightning strikes as like a <laughs> disaster or, you know, uh, and being having hardware that's resilient to that seems, uh, you know, very challenging. Uh, uh, it is indeed. And, and you can't really build lightning resistant systems. All you can really do is limit the damage to as few, to as, as, as small a piece of your infrastructure as possible. Yeah. I just, I think te you could test temperatures. I can see that you can yeah. maybe test water, uh, testing lightning is a, another, you know, or could be fun. I guess you, I guess you test it in, in the real world when it happens. Um, you do indeed. Yes. So uh, another question back to the back to the the role is um, there's always this interesting balance and we we hit on it a little bit before about depth versus breadth right like because you do need and I think we 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 talked a little bit about the depth that you need right you need enough right when you talked about uh, you know having been an engineer and like being able to talk at the architect level and um, what is the breadth angle like you know how do you, how do you sort of see that because because you can't know about everything, right? Like, no. um... so let's see, let me think this through a little bit. Um, I think you need to be able to have at least an intelligent conversation about everything that your organization does. Uh, if you, if there's something you're starting to do as an organization that you don't know, I, I think it's my responsibility to go learn it. 
um, perhaps not to the engineer level, but at least to the, again, the architecture level where I can at least talk about how does this fit in with existing systems? What kind of budget is this going to require, right? How much money do we need more people or different people, or do people need new skill sets to do this new thing that we're interested in doing? So I don't think it's optional for a CTO to not have the breadth to at least have an intelligent conversation about everything their organization is doing. Um, I think it, on top of that, we need to go outside those bounds. We need to look at, you know, part of the role of CTO, if you look historically, CTOs have existed since the, the late 1940s. They kind of came into existence at the end of World War II as, as the guys who ran research and development, the guys who ran the scientists for organizations and did all the research. And while, while the CTO role has certainly expanded since then, I think it, personally, I think it's critical that we, we, we still maintain a little bit of that focus looking ahead, which requires you to know more than your organization is currently doing to look at what researchers are doing in the real world, whether that's reading white papers, whether it's reading, you know, just doing research on the web, whatever it is, you need to be able to look a little bit further than what you're actually doing right this minute. Um, I, I think breadth is actually more important than depth, honestly, because you can always hire people who have the depth you need in a specific topic to help you and assist you in evaluating or working on, on something. But if you, if you can't even have an intelligent conversation about something, you can't hire that out. Nope. And, and it seems like you're, you're sort of saying is you always need to figure out what the next the next thing is right. Like you, you always need to broaden your, your, the job is to sort of broaden the horizons as opposed to, you know, yes. go deep. Right. Um, I, that's a great statement. I agree with that. And I, I do think there's a balance there because there has to be the, we, and we already talked about, there has to be the anchor. Like you have to have the conversation. I've, I have seen people who just go too broad, right. And they don't have, they, 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 they go into areas and they don't have the technical depth and that, I think that does become a problem. You can't. I understand you can hire people to do it, but sometimes those conversations get too far up in the clouds. Um, right. All right. Um, so here's another. So some people who might be watching this like might want to become a CTO in the future. So okay. where do CTOs come from? I mean, you 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 already talked about becoming an engineer, but what do they like? Um, what is the career path, right? Um, so I've seen two. Well, okay. So if we look at successful CTOs, I've seen two paths. One of them is in the okay. large corporations. Um, again, I, I talked about at one point I worked for Intel. When you're a CTO for somebody like Intel, you were probably, you know, quote unquote, bred to be a CTO, right? You, you learn all the proper management things. You work your way up through the ranks. You do different jobs. Hopefully you probably started as an engineer somewhere, but but that's probably long in your past. And th those guys can be exceptionally good CTOs. The other path I've seen that leads to good CTOs are the startups. It's the guy who had the good idea, who's the co-founder of the company. Maybe he had some of this management experience and maybe he didn't. He probably came from being a pure engineer. Not all of those guys succeed, right? Not all, not all of them do well. Some of them end up stepping down from the CTO role and then hiring that job out. Some of them step into that role and learn it and do it quite well. 
Um, but those are the two paths I've seen. You know, the, the second one is a little bit dicier because you, you're, you're kind of skipping over some of that, that learning that a lot of the, the higher, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation CTOs have. You probably haven't been to business school. You probably haven't done some of these other things. But a lot of them, a lot of the most successful CTOs I've seen have done that anyway and have stepped in from the management role and then learned the other side of it. Um, personally, I'm too new to this role. Again, I've been doing this about six months to say whether or not, uh, you know, how this is all going to work out. But, but uh, that's what I've seen in terms of, of success. No, it's, it's, a, it's a good insight because even at the CTO role and other roles in companies, what you need for like 10 people is different than you need for 100 and 1,000 and 10,000. Like these are, you know, orders of magnitude in size of the company and what a CTO has to, to bring. So um, I should be interviewing people of all different sizes. That's a great insight. And I will compare and contrast, uh, you know, um, different types of organizations, different sizes of organizations. Um, I, I did have, there, there was, there was somebody I saw who like on their LinkedIn profile had hands-on CTO. Okay. And this confused me because to like, to me, like, be, like that back to that being grounded, if being grounded and being hands-on to some degree, like, as you just mentioned, soldering before things like that seems to be a requirement. I don't know why they had to put that in their, uh, their, 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 their title. Uh, why do you think that might've been like, there must be some other kind of CTO that is not hands on. I don't know. So obviously I've never been a, a, a blue chip level CTO, but I'm envisioning, right. I'm envisioning what these guys do all day. And I kind of suspect they're in meeting hell, right? I kind of suspect they spend their days in meetings. They spend their days managing the people that manage all the different aspects of the organization and, and progress. And again, I'm I'm speculating here, but I'm imagining these guys probably don't sit down and write code. They pr- probably don't go into the lab and mess around with, you know, 13 micron processors inside their fab lab. Um, they probably don't sit down and write Ruby scripts or Python scripts. They're probably doing management. Uh, a hands-on CTO, you know, I, I would consider myself a very hands-on CTO. Again, I'll sit down and configure VPN tunnels, add SSH keys, upgrade software, as well as all the higher level management things, you know, filling positions and dealing with budgets and money and things like that. Um, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I'm guessing it's the guys in the larger organizations who simply just don't have time to walk into the lab and do, you know, what I would call real work, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's walking in the lab and sit down and touch the stuff and do something or just walk by the lab. I, it makes, makes sense. Yeah. So um, what, so changing topics a little bit is, sure. and we talked about this a little bit. What is your, so what do you consider the role of the CTO as it relates to innovation? Right. And you mentioned this a little bit, you know, early on, but let's just talk about forward looking about, you know, in innovating. How do you sort of see whether it be your like what you do or you know, the, the role in general about around innovation? Sure. So, you know, again, the CTO role kind of evolved in the late 40s, early 50s as the, the guy who had all the the gray beards, right? The, the mad scientists who are inventing things and filing patents and mixing chemicals together. 
Uh, the CTO role stems from innovation. That is its roots and its foundation. Uh, the CTO role again has has morphed. It's grown. It includes a lot more than it did back in you know 1953. At the same time, I think it would be wrong to lose that aspect of the CTO role. That is the fundamental thing that distinguishes a CTO from a CIO, for example. Um, the CIO manages your infrastructure. The CTO invents things. The CTO looks forward. You know, three three years, five years, seven years, ten years. It kind of depends on what what kind of industry you're in. Um, I, I I think it's that is the single most fundamental thing to me that that distinguishes a CTO from one of the other high level technical roles is is innovation. Wow, that's that's a great answer to that question. Um, so so let's let's. Uh, I'd like to talk about tech. So let's talk about tech for a few minutes. Um, okay. You talked before about the the grinding and then the step function. So what are a few things um, that are undergoing significant changes, uh, you know, right now in the tech space? And, and, and what's driving that change and what challenges could come from it? Um, Sure. So, you know, just speaking very, very broadly, right? Um, sure. I, I work in my day job in security. Um, and, and in software, the, the, I personally feel the single largest change happening in our world right now is machine learning and artificial intelligence. I, I think it's going to fundamentally change the way we solve problems. I think it's going to fundamentally change the way we do work. Uh, if, if you've played with open AI's chat GPT system that they released, I think it was November 30th. It was just a few weeks ago. If you're not astonished and frightened at the things you're able to do with that that system that you know you get a free account you can log in and play with it if you're not truly fundamentally scared about what you're going to have to do in the future you don't understand it yet that is going to be i think the largest transformational change we've seen in 50 years in this industry um, it is truly astonishing what that technology can do. To me, that is the most exciting, most interesting, and most frightening thing we have coming up the pike right now. Um, certainly, there's other things. You know, we're looking at quantum computing. We're looking at uh, even simpler things like the proliferation of incredibly high-powered uh, graphics cards for machines that, that allow you to have, you know, 1,024 or 4,096 processors in your machine and, and the new things that's opening up in terms of simulating physics or, or things like that. Those are, those are transformational as well, but I think AI is the big one. So, so let's talk a little bit more about what, what do you think some of the challenges are? You sort of said being scared. What do you think, what do you think specifically, you know, a, a challenge could be, right? Maybe it'll come to pass. Maybe it won't. What do you, what do you think? So there's, you know, one of them is going to be the legal side of things. Um, if you have the, the, the self-driving car industry is dealing with this right now. I go buy a Tesla and I'm driving on autopilot. The car is driving itself and I get in an accident and, and someone is killed. Who's at fault? Is the driver of the car at fault? Is the owner of the car at fault? Is the manufacturer of the car at fault? 
Is the guy who wrote the software at fault? Is the repair guy at the dealership who didn't upgrade the software when he should have at fault? You know, those are all challenges we're going to have to figure out at some point. And that's got to grind its way through the legal system. And that's going to be really interesting. And I don't think that's limited to to just self-driving cars. We're going to have medical systems that do diagnosis. We're going to have at some point medical systems that perhaps even do surgery and things like that. Again, finding fault seems like a very mundane thing in the technology world, but it's absolutely critical before you can deploy some of this technology to know if I deploy this new technology as part of my product and something goes wrong, who's at fault, right? Who, who's going to get sued? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? What are my responsibilities in deploying some of this technology? Those are all things we need to understand that uh, we're, just, we're just not there yet. And it's going to take time to work its way through the system. But that's one of the things that scares me. Yeah, I was talking with my kids about, um, you know, chat GPT and about, like, could it ask you to write your report for your, like, uh, Lord of the Flies essay, right? Like, and then how is a teacher going to find, if it's so good, how is a teacher going to find that this has been, you know, I mean, plagiarism was, you were copying things, right? So they have all this plagiarism yeah. software, so you can, teachers can figure that out. But now if it's, or, you know, gener AI generated, how are they going to, you know, solve that problem. Um, that's right. another one of accountability, right? I mean, you're talking about responsibility and accountability. It's a different side of that. Yeah. There's, there's moral aspects to that. There's, there's ethical, you know, there, yeah, we're, we're just going to have to, it's, it's, it's almost like we've invented new people. Do they have rights? Do they not have rights? Do they, who's responsible for what? It's, it's going to be fun to figure all this out. So any any other so you talked a little bit about um, graphic cards with uh, a lot of processing. Uh, yep. Any other kind of major you know change going on that you're you're interested I, in? even I, even in your yeah. domain, right? Well, so so I, I I can't pass up the the opportunity to talk about quantum computing, right? That that's fundamentally going to change cryptography among other things in, in enormous ways. Yes, we're developing new algorithms that are, you know, quantum computer resistant, but we've still got a legacy of, you know, how many trillions of terabytes of old encrypted data that's still floating around the internet that will be instantly readable that we thought was safe for a million years. So those are all fun things we're going to have to figure out. Um, in my world, in, in the radio world, we have, uh, you know, here, here's one of the things I'm, I'm literally dealing with today, you know, on my week off from work. Um, in, in the radio world, there are standards for digital communications for small handheld radios, you know, for, for the members to talk to one another. And it's kind of like Mac, Windows, and Linux. There's multiple standards. They're all fundamentally similar, and yet they're incompatible. And so, you know, part of the organization goes off and buys this kind of radio, and part goes off and buys that kind of radio, and part goes off and buys a third. And now they all want to talk to each other. So one of the things we're working on as an organization is bringing those three technologies together, doing the audio transcoding from one to another, and building a system where people who buy radios from brand X can talk to people with radios with brand Y. 
and that's not unique to us. There's there's other organizations working on this as well, but that that's one of the the interesting technological challenges that we're working on today. The technology is moving forward. It's moving forward quickly, but it's on multiple branches, multiple incompatible branches. Interesting. And, you know, we're 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 trying to reconcile some of that and find a way for it all to work together. All right. Well, thank you. So I have one. So last question here. We do this little speed round at the end that I borrowed from Lenny's podcast. He, um, he's, uh, he's inspired. His podcast has inspired this podcast. Um, okay. So four quick questions. Like, yeah. um, so what's one book you recommend? Okay. I can't recommend. So I love books, right? If you yes. look behind me, obviously I love books. As a CTO, the single most valuable resource I've found is a thing on GitHub called Awesome CTO. And Awesome CTO, if you do a Google search on it, will bring up a list of books, a list of articles about everything you could ever want to know about the CTO job from dozens of different perspectives, people, technology, money, budgeting, all that stuff. That's what I would recommend. That's what I've been learning from in my new role as CTO. Great, great reference. What about a podcast you love? So. I'll be honest, I stopped commuting about 10 years ago and have worked from home ever since. And I don't listen to podcasts anymore okay. because that's something I used to do in the car. It makes sense. What about a movie TV show? Movie TV show is easy. I love Mr. Robot. And the reason I love Mr. Robot, besides the great story, is it's the only technology-related thing I can watch where I don't get angry. Clearly, when they created that show, they hired some people who actually understand computers, networks, security, and they actually listen to them. And so when the main character sits down and starts hacking into a system, he uses the same tools I would use and even uses the same command line. So I love Mr. Robot for that reason, is, is I can watch it and not be angry. All right, last one. So, so what is one tech that you love? And it could be it could be a consumer tech you have, but like if it's like the the thing you want everybody to sort of know about that you just kind of discovered. I, you know, I I love radio. Right, this, this is my number one hobby. I absolutely love all aspects of radio. I love having a Morse code, you know, communication with a guy in Australia at three o'clock in the morning. I love talking to my friends around town. Um, there's so many aspects to the hobby. There are over 20 ham radio satellites in orbit, and I can have conversations with other people using satellites that are owned by amateur radio operators and amateur radio organizations. Radio is fun. Bouncing so signals off the moon. If somebody wanted to learn more about that, where would they go to start? Every, every community of any size has a ham radio club. Um, look for your local ham radio club. There are There's a nationwide or organization called the ARRL, the Amateur Radio Relay League. It's over 100 years old. They will certainly, they're a great resource, but there's nothing better than finding the people in your local community to sit down with and, and learn from. And every town of any size has a ham radio club. And I would encourage people to, to seek it out. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for taking the time. I actually learned a lot of interesting things uh, on this, uh, this this video. Thank you very much. You're very Have welcome. Good, Good talking right. with you.